From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Denver neighborhood gets a bad rap, and elementary school kids hope to change that with their podcast. A lot of people call Montbello Montghetto. Hmm. So students through the podcast are able to kind of rewrite the narrative and share that, man, there are heroes that live in Montbello. The kids tackle immigration, race, and law enforcement. Then, when recreational marijuana dispensaries opened in Colorado, medical stores, whose products generally cost less, began to close. I'm afraid of cannabis becoming even more out of reach financially for those who need it most. These are the patients that are most vulnerable. And they include children. We explore that today in On Something. Plus, Ralphie's retiring, where she's headed after a near-record run for the CU Buffs. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Or is it? The Voice of Mombello Podcast. For the next little while, we're going to share the airwaves with students at McGlone Academy in Denver, some of them as young as nine. As you heard, they have a podcast called The Voice of Montbello, named for the neighborhood where most of them live, and where poverty, immigration, and race relations are part of kids' daily realities. Their teacher, Paul Clifton, says the neighborhood is also full of heroes. He started the podcast in 2017. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, your students have interviewed Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, the rapper Brother Ali. They've also made more personal episodes like interviewing parents about their immigration stories. My mother said that she came to the United States of America so I could have a better life and that I had to leave my family in El Salvador. I came here so I could be safe because in El Salvador there were killing people. I crossed the border with people that I did not know. When I first came to the United States, I feel horrible because people treat me different because I did not know and speak English. Does that just get to the heart of why you put together this podcast? Oh, definitely. I mean, sharing stories is so important to help build empathy in our community. A lot of uh, the students that we have at McGlone, you know, they're first-generation Americans or they're immigrants themselves. And... Through creating the podcast at the school, we're teaching kids, helping kids um, use social media to share their story in a positive way. Nearly a quarter of Montbello families live in poverty. That's more than twice the average metro-wide. As someone who works in Montbello, spends time with these families, what do you see that we can't from statistics like that about poverty? Wow, (laughs) that's a huge question. I would say that a lot of times, even working in education, we're, we use a lot of numbers, right? And a lot of times students that are free and reduced lunch, we count, you know, test scores, students that are proficient in different, in different areas. So a lot of times when, you know, you regard people and students as, as just numbers and people that are in poverty, then you disregard their story and the amount of value that they bring to the table. And I feel like through this podcast, we were able to highlight those stories that make Montbello special. And the students that are producing the podcast, writing the podcast, they're able to show their brilliance. Um, they're even helping create background music. Yeah. So my first year of teaching, we had a studio um, in the school. My passion is recording music. And um, I brought in my studio equipment and 
students started making beats. And so every year, that's an aspect of my classroom is having a production studio in there. I wonder if you felt like you had a voice in your neighborhood growing up. I mean, I, I grew up in Utah, in Ogden, Utah. And, you know, as a black male who's mixed, there weren't many other black males in Utah. I mean, it, it doesn't really exist. I grew up Mormon and and a lot of times in church and things like that, we would learn about pioneers and we would learn about Europeans who came to America and did amazing things and colonized America. But I really didn't have my, my story wasn't told and I didn't have a lot of um, peers or adults that could really teach those lessons to me about who I am, you know, where I come from. And like as an adult, being able to find out more about my identity through education and through music and through media really influenced me to become a media arts teacher and provide those opportunities to students, you know, like you said, at the age of nine and up. I think I have it right that for a, a quite a long time in its history, the Latter-day Saints did not allow African-Americans to fully participate or, or participate at all, right? Right. Until 1978. Right. Um, if you were of African descent, you weren't allowed to go into the temple. Like you could be a member, but you weren't allowed to go into the temple. And the temple signifies heaven. So you're basically shut out of going to heaven. That's the message that you get. And a lot of times for Latter-day Saints, like a lot of Latter-day Saints don't know about that history. Mm. They're not taught that. You have a regular segment called Heroes of Montbello. One of those heroes is a police officer named Elisa Garcia, and the kids shared their impressions after her visit. It was an honor for Officer Garcia to come in and tell her hero's journey. I never knew that it took five years for Officer Garcia to become a police officer. I was inspired to learn that becoming a police officer takes a lot of work. You gotta believe in yourself to achieve your goals. Now that I know education is really important, I will pay more attention in classes so I can achieve my goal for be, of being a teacher. Also, I never knew that Officer Garcia was in a gang and did drugs. I was inspired to learn that every everyone has made a mistake in life, but mistakes help you grow. My goodness, uh, the, the background of that officer who had been incarcerated. Right. I mean, Officer Garcia is a great example of the, you know, the heroes that exist in Montbello. There are so many folks that grew up in Montbello and have gone on to do amazing things. And there's a lot of people that have gone through some tough times in their lives and, and have rebounded and are the parents of our of the students at our school at Magalone. And those stories are like so important to share because none of the students knew any of that about, about Romy's mom. And oh, then, so that, she's a student's mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, Heroes of Montbello is kind of like a way for... Um, kids to bring in their parents oh. and interview them as heroes. And they may be, these parents, helping police the neighborhood in this case. Exactly. It's so important that we help students frame the narrative of what's taught about our community. Like in Montbello, a lot of people call Montbello Montghetto. And hmm. so students through the podcast are able to kind of rewrite the narrative and share that, man, there are heroes that live in Montbello. And so, you know, we need to speak about Montbello in a more positive light. You often begin an episode with students' reflections of what they learned from the particular interview or story. And in one episode about the 1969 West High School walkouts, 11-year-old Juliana Soto 
said something pretty poignant about her hopes for the podcast. We are doing this podcast episode in order to show Chicano pride and let America know that they are making a mistake when they discriminated against us and to tell them how we felt when they treated us like that. So as today, we are going to convince people to have empathy. What did you think when you heard that? Man, I, I was really excited. I, I mean, initially... Um, the students interviewed my father to gain empathy with the African-American experience. I'm an ELS teacher and I teach in Spanish. And so my first year of teaching, um, all of my students were Latino and I'm their African-American teacher. And there were some issues that came up in the school when it came to, you know, racism and, and students, you know, saying mean things to each other between Latinos and African-Americans. You felt a kind of segregation. Yeah, there was definitely a segregation, for sure, um, based on the way the classes are set up. Like, they were all Latino in my, in my class. And some things were said, and we had a community circle, and, and we talked about the instances of racism and, and what racism is. And one thing that was surfaced was that a lot of my students weren't allowed to play with black kids. And, you know, at first I was really shocked and I was upset. This was something their families, their parents would have told them. Right. Yeah. It's something that someone in the community must have shared with them that it wasn't okay to play with black kids. And so that first episode, they interviewed my father who lived through segregation, picked cotton, worked in fields and overcame a lot of obstacles to then, you know, go to college and when he was 50 years old and, and get, a, get a degree. He went to college at 50. Yeah. He, he graduated at 50 years old and um, he's a hero of mine, right? So it was important for them to see, um, have an experience of interviewing one of my heroes and know, hear about that African-American experience to then also find how it's similar. There's intersectionality between the experience of an immigrant and someone who lived through segregation. Well, here's a taste. What were the conditions like in your school? I went to a segregated school and it was for blacks only. At that time, I would walk by a, a school for white kids and go on about a mile and a half to the school that was set up for the black, us black kids. What has most surprised you about making this podcast with the kids? The most surprising thing is that the podcast is, has grown. Most of the time in schools, you will do a quick activity, a quick project, and it'll be something cute to share with your parents and, and the students. But this is something that is, has gotten big. You know, we have listeners all over the country. We're now we're looking to expand. We're starting an artist in residency program. All of these opportunities are coming through because the students are using their voice and they want to do more. So who's a dream interview? Ooh, a dream. Well, one interview that students have wanted for a long time is Michelle Obama. Okay. They feel like that would be the interview of all interviews. We've put it out there. Yeah. Michelle, if you're listening, let's make it happen. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Paul Clifton, who teaches at McGlone Academy in Denver, his students interview their neighbors and reflect on social issues through their podcast, The Voice of Montbello. We'll be right back with a notable four-legged retirement. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. The stories, music, and statewide coverage wouldn't be possible without member support. In short, you make what you tune in for possible. If CPR adds value to your life, support it at CPR.org.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A big retirement in Colorado sports. Ralphie Five, CU Boulder's real-life Buffalo mascot, is retiring after 12 seasons, the second longest run in CU history. John Graves manages the Ralphie Live Mascot Program. So Ralphie Five, she's just going to keep hanging out at her ranch, grazing her pastures, and we'll continue to care for her and go out to see her every single day and make sure she's good and healthy and enjoys her retirement. But how do they know when it's time for a Ralphie to slip into the days of grazing and loafing around with other buffalo? What we kind of do before every game and in the weeks leading up to the game is we just kind of, we look at her and we talk to her and we understand what she's thinking and how she's feeling and if she wants to run those games. And for the past two home games, What's kind of happened is she's starting to try to run a little bit earlier than we would like her to, which isn't a safe situation. So we haven't run her at the past two games. So to reiterate, this is not because she doesn't want to run. As she's aged throughout her career, she's actually sped up as she's running around the field just because she loves to run so much. The previous Ralphies, they've actually slowed down throughout their careers, whereas Ralphie 5 has gotten faster. And now the search for a six begins, a long process to select the right buffalo for the job. So we look at their demeanor, their temperament, how friendly they are with people, how comfortable they are around people. We also want to ensure that they're good and healthy and they have good legs and joints since Ralphie obviously runs out on the field and leads the team before each football game. Uh, we want to make sure that we find a, a new buffalo who's healthy enough to do that and a buffalo who wants to do that. Ralphie Six, whoever that is, will start running Folsom Field in the 2020 football season. All right, back to the idea of podcasts where we began the show. So this year, CPR launched one. On Something is about life after legalization. Season one just wrapped. It explored the history of cannabis, a church of ganja, and on the latest episode, which we're going to hear today, it's about the unexpected impact recreational marijuana has had on the medical product. But first, before we hear it, host Anne-Maria Wad joins me. Hi, Anne. Good morning. More seasons of On Something are coming. This is not the end. Uh, just the end of the season. Uh, That's right. What was the biggest surprise from season one? Um, it just keeps getting more and more complicated. Um, the whole, <laughs> I like, sort of conception of this podcast in the first place was I was a reporter in our newsroom and I was covering legal weed issues. Um, and I just kept finding these surprising ways that people were running into legal weed, whether it was for immigration reasons or whether they were interacting with child protective services more because of medical marijuana. Um and throughout the course of reporting 10 whole episodes of this podcast, it's even more complicated than we thought when we started. Which is why there are more seasons to oh, come yeah. as you untangle all of that. What's been a favorite interview? I really like, um, towards the end of our first season, we talked with Buck Angel, who's a very famous porn star. Um, but we talked about how he sort of lived through the AIDS epidemic in the early 90s that ended up spurring medical marijuana legalization in California. Um and I really love that interview because, you know, often in this business, we don't think about what it's like to be on the other side of the mic. It's awkward. It takes a while for people to get comfortable with us. And Buck, for whatever reason, just opened up right away and was really vulnerable with us and shared some really difficult memories that 
it sounded like it hurt for him to revisit, but mm. I think of losing friends, of course, family. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that is one of my favorite episodes that we've done because of that. You know, cannabis is controversial, and people feel really passionate about it. Were you at all afraid of stepping into an issue that can be so polarizing? I, uh, yes. And also every layer of my uh, bosses uh, were nervous about it, too. I mean, I think that's like that's why we kind of chose to address it the way that we do in the podcast, which is uh, marijuana is not a brand new thing. Um, People smoke marijuana all the time. It's not a moral determination of their character. I'm pretty transparent about the fact that I use marijuana and I'm in a dispensary regularly, like a lot of other people in Colorado are. Um, And I, you know, I think that that is an asset to our show, that I have a foot in this world and I can sort of talk about the nuance of not is legalization good, is legalization bad, but how exactly is it unfolding and how are people interacting with it and how is it affecting people? Thanks so much. Thank you. That is Anne-Marie Awad, host of CPR's podcast, On Something. Let's listen to the latest episode about the convergence of medical and recreational marijuana. Okay. All right. Do you want to introduce yourself? Can you shake his hand? What is your name? I am myself. I knew it. In a way. Tell him your name. My name Funky. I know. Funky is his nickname, and he likes to go. Anyway. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I guess. (laughs) This is 11-year-old Vincent with his mom, Michelle. Ben Marcus, what else can you tell us about them? So I meet Vincent. He's sitting on this huge couch in his living room, kind of curled up a little bit. He's got shaggy hair, a T-shirt and shorts on, and then he shows me this teddy bear. What's his name, Vincent? The Floss Teddy Bear. Do you like him? My name for Floss Teddy Bear. I guess. You showed some. That's some a shock. yeah. That's a really big deal, and I'm gonna cry. Actually, um, he just pretended with you. Ben, why is this a big deal? He's 11. Don't all 11 year olds pretend? Yeah, but see, the difference here, though, is that Vincent is severely autistic, and he doesn't really speak much. And so to his mom, this is this huge step forward. He was pretending that the teddy bear was talking, and at the end he said, Hi, my name is Flash Teddy Bear. And so he had his teddy bear over here at the microphone talking, and like that's never happened, guys. So um, that's a really big deal. (laughs) Because of Vincent's autism, he struggles to form words, though he is getting better at that. He also has epilepsy. So for much of his childhood, he's had to struggle with multiple seizures a day. Oh, wow. And that's why Vincent is a medical marijuana patient. He uses it to treat his seizures. Michelle also claims, though, that it's helping with the autism. Hey, buddy. Can we do medicine? So a few times a day, Michelle fills this syringe with cannabis oil, and she squirts it into Vincent's mouth. Thank you. That's it. I told you, super anticlimactic. <laughs> we give him his medicine, and that's it. And he takes it. He knows that he needs it, or when he doesn't need it. Like earlier, I asked you, hey, do you need your medicine, Vincent? And he says no. Or if he's having a really rough day and he does need it, like um, I've asked him before, V, do you need your medicine? He's like, behaviors, like just yelling, getting up. And he'll yell, I need my medicine. And I'm like, okay, dude. So... Give him his medicine, he's cool. 
Michelle and Vincent, they live here in Colorado, so she can take Vincent's prescription and his med card to any dispensary and get his medicine, right? Well, not any dispensary. Medical marijuana dispensaries are starting to disappear in Colorado. With help from my colleague Ben, we're going to dig into why this matters. So medical marijuana actually is different from recreational marijuana in some important ways. First of all, it's more potent, right. especially when it comes to edibles and oils. And medical marijuana is cheaper. It's taxed at a completely different rate. So for people who are on the medical side who are using lots of it, that makes a big difference. That's right, yeah. But most importantly, Vincent's a minor, and this is the only way that he can legally consume weed. These products and the stores that are allowed to carry them are vanishing due to the growing popularity of recreational weed. In Denver, medical store licenses have fallen more than 30 percent since recreational sales began in 2014. And this is playing out in states across the country that have legalized both recreational and medicinal marijuana. From Oregon to Washington to Alaska, the number of people who are enrolled in medical marijuana programs is shrinking and fast. So on today's episode, is medical marijuana on the way out? And if so, what does the future hold for a kid like Vincent? This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. On this show, we talk about people's relationships with weed. And today, how states that have recreational marijuana may not be looking after their medical marijuana patients. To tell this story, let me formally introduce Ben Marcus. He's our reporter here at Colorado Public Radio, and he's covered the cannabis industry for years, not just the business side of things either. Right. I was put on the beat after recreational marijuana passed in Colorado in 2012. The day after, the editors were like, whoa, this thing passed. We need a reporter who's going to cover this thing for the next few years. So that was me. Yes. Uh, Until I came along. Until you came along. (laughs) Thank goodness, because I was done with it. You're buried under weed. It was really the only beat I've ever covered where I smelt like it afterwards. (laughs) So, Ben... You and I have been covering marijuana in Colorado for a while, and I think it's easy for us to forget how controversial a story like Vincent's can be. I mean, here's a kid who uses marijuana daily. It's not uncommon to see kids as the face of medical marijuana these days, but there are only like 350 kids, give or take, in Colorado on the medical marijuana registry. That doesn't sound like a lot. It's not a lot of people, um, but after legalization passed in Colorado for recreational cannabis in 2012, Colorado was in headlines in newspapers all across the world, and people who had kids who were really sick saw... Maybe I can get my medicine there, too. Like, Colorado is this open place. This phenomenon developed called marijuana refugees. People traveling from all over the country to try to see if they could find a drug that could possibly help their kids. People like Michelle, who used to live in Texas. Take me back to the very beginning. Um, what was what was pregnancy and birth like? Everything seemed perfectly normal? Uh, he was... He was pretty typical at the beginning. Um, you know, a little colicky, had some restlessness. But overall, he was pretty healthy. 
When did you first notice that something maybe wasn't quite right? Um, it's hard because when I look back at pictures, I can tell. But when he w- when I was in the throes of it, um, I noticed around 14 to 16 months is when he I noticed that he didn't speak at all. He couldn't even direct like if he was hungry or if he was thirsty. All he could do was cry. And so I told his doctor, I was like, oh, what's going on? Doctor said, nah, it's normal. He's a boy. He'll talk when he's two. And I'm like you don't understand. And so a couple months pass, I go back. I'm like, he still doesn't talk. And he said, fine. You know, he placated me and sent me to a speech therapist. And uh, we met with this therapist and uh, about 30 minutes into the, the evaluation, she stops and she's like, I, I want you to know that I think your son could have autism. I can't diagnose him as such, but that's what it looks like. And I'm just like brick wall. I mean, it was not even in my realm of possibilities. I never even thought about it. So Vincent spent his early years in South Texas, where he was born. That's right. And so shortly after this visit with the speech therapist, Vincent gets a formal diagnosis from a doctor who says that he has autism. Mm. Now, Michelle is determined to keep Vincent at home. Bear in mind that she's a single mom. She's doing this on her own. And Vincent doesn't just have autism. He has all these other things. He's got OCD. He's got ADHD. He's got sensory processing disorder. Now, these are conditions that coexist with autism. It doesn't make it any easier. She's experimenting with different diets and medicines. And so let's fast forward a little bit. He's five years old now. He still can't talk, but he's actually stable enough, she says, to go to school. So... I get a call from school one day, and they say, something's going on with Vincent. He was shaking. I said, oh, my God, he's having a seizure. They said, we, you need to take him to the hospital. And he was upright, and he was able to, you know, he was cognizant, but he had clearly had a physical manifestation of a seizure. So at the hospital, the doctors discover something disturbing. This wasn't Vincent's first seizure, and there's no way to tell actually how long this has been going on. He was seizing about every 10 seconds, and we had no idea. He, um, he had something called absence seizures, and so it would look like he was just ignoring you or just doing his own thing. That is incredible. I mean, to discover that your kid has been having seizures right in front of you, and you have no way of knowing. Yeah, they just couldn't see it, but now they can, and now it's a crisis on top of all the other things they have to deal with. Right. And now epilepsy is different from some of the other things he's dealing with because this is life-threatening now. Seizures can lead to brain damage, they can lead to injuries. And so Michelle and her doctors are now adding different medicines to Vincent's regime, and there's this one, it's an anti-convulsant called Keppra. One of the side effects of Keppra is something affectionately known as Keprage. Um, aggression, uncontrollable aggression. And um, that's what happened. He became severely aggressive and his seizures weren't still completely controlled. Ben, I'm curious because you have a kid. Um, You were there when Michelle gave a dose to Vincent. I mean, what was going through your mind when you saw that? So when I started this project, I thought I have a five-year-old daughter and I talked to these doctors and I thought there is no way that I would give (laughs) marijuana to my daughter if she was sick because the doctors are saying, look, we haven't really tested this. We don't know what the side effects are. We don't know what the dosing is. But when you meet people like Michelle and Vincent and they're in a desperate situation, and this is a kid who is very ill, 
and you realize as a parent that you'll do anything to help your child. And yeah. if it's cannabis, then let's try it and see what happens. Yeah. So it's around this time that Michelle is in touch with other parents with autistic kids. And it's almost amazing how these natural groups form around parents and dealing with these issues. And this one particular group is called MAMA, Mothers Advancing Medical Marijuana for Autism. And a few of them suggested that maybe she try giving cannabis to Vincent. I said, yeah, that's cool. Thanks for sharing. And that's as far as it went because Michelle was not taking cannabis seriously as a treatment option for her very sick son. Until one day, not long after Vincent's epilepsy had emerged, the head of Mama dropped her a line. The president kind of popped in my inbox again. She goes, hey, Michelle, I know you're going through a lot. I'm really praying for you. If you ever want to talk, and if you ever want to talk a little bit more about some options, let me know. I'm like, okay, yep, now's the time. Now we're going to talk. <laughs> so uh, we talked. But really, that's all Michelle could do while she's living in Texas. Right. So the Lone Star State has medical cannabis, but it's the Texas version. It's far more restrictive. Vincent could qualify because the state allows it for epilepsy, but it's smaller doses, too small to be of any use to Vincent. Plus, Texas is not exactly brimming with dispensaries like Colorado or California. There is one in the whole freaking state of Texas. Right. So Michelle realizes pretty quickly the Texas system is not going to work for Vincent. So around this time, Michelle's boyfriend, Scott, he became so invested that he would join Michelle at things like autism conferences where he heard a doctor speak about cannabis as a possible treatment. And Scott listened to him talk and he walks out and he goes, Michelle, we have to move to Colorado. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We're not moving to Colorado. You retired from the Air Force here. This is where we are. You've been here. This is our home. Uh, No, we need to move to Colorado. And by the way, will you marry me? (laughs) We got engaged that weekend, and then we said, all right, we're moving to Colorado. They became medical marijuana refugees, like we mentioned earlier. But first, they have to visit Colorado and find a place to live. That would help, yeah. And after that, they have to see maybe if Vincent will even respond to medical marijuana. And so the whole family goes looking for houses. This is the fall of 2017. And while they're here, they buy some cannabis legally. And they decide to give a little bit of it to him. So it's like lunchtime. The weather's nice. And Michelle and Scott decide to administer the first dose of cannabis to Vincent on the outdoor patio of this restaurant. We didn't really have any expectations, did we? We It would moderate his behavior. That that the aggression would go away and that maybe it would unlock the loving person on the inside and not the person that we saw on the outside that was was the result of the pharmaceuticals. And we got it in spades. I mean, when he took his first dose, um, he suddenly wanted to hug with us and he giggled and and he became very happy. And it was obvious that it wasn't a high, that it was a a completely different kind of effect on him. And that it just, it really did unlock the the person on the inside. And it let us, I remember Michelle said it, she said it was like meeting her son for the first time. I mean, imagine for a second how powerful that is, right? Feeling like you've met your son for the first time. So as big as it sounds to move from Texas to Colorado, the family has decided that this is the right move for them. Ben, I think it's important that we offer some kind of disclaimer here. Right. So I talked to several doctors who are specialists in these fields of epilepsy and autism. And doctors tell me that there is some promise in terms of research for marijuana's effectiveness for epilepsy. 
When it comes to autism, it's pretty thin. But as one doctor told me, quote, it's not going to set your kid on fire, unquote. <laughs> and so if you have somebody who is a tough case, it's not the end of the world to give it a try. Michelle and Scott thought they'd found some kind of miracle, but that isn't where their story ends. Still to come, was moving to Colorado really worth it? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When medical marijuana showed up on the market, it seemed like dispensaries were everywhere. Then recreational pot comes along and patients find themselves in a lurch as medicinal stores begin to close. That's the focus of the latest episode of CPR's podcast, On Something. Here again, host Anne-Maria Wad and reporter Ben Marcus. Two years ago, Michelle and Scott, now married, move from Texas to Colorado so they can get access to medical marijuana for Vincent. But nowadays, it's not as accessible as it once was. This is a problem on the business end of things. So, Ben, we sent you out to find someone who could explain exactly what's changed. So I want to introduce you to Tim Cullen. He owns Colorado Harvest Company. He's become kind of a marijuana mogul in the years that I've been interviewing him on this beat. He's tall. He's in his mid-40s. And he lets us into his house. And I have to admit, I was a little shocked. Damn, dude. Yeah, this place is cool, huh? It's got this Bigelow thing going on here. Views of the front range. There's this really cool art on the walls and this saltwater fish tank that kind of stops you in your tracks. This thing is like living art to, to watch. When you first walked in here, what did you think? I thought if I could figure out how this house could be my house, I'm going to try to figure that out. And it all worked out. Wow. This is the house that Legal Weed built, huh? Right, but it all started with medical cannabis. Tim's interest in weed, it actually goes back to his childhood in Colorado. His dad was a Vietnam veteran. Now, he didn't openly smoke in front of his children, but he didn't really hide it either. My father just owned my brother and I on Saturdays, and um, one of the jobs that that he always gave us was cleaning his cars. And so um, one day we were cleaning out one of the cars, and we, we found about a half a joint. And we decided we we're going to put it in the garage in a place where if he asked for it, we could, we could find it again. But if he didn't ask for it, we were going to wait for a while and then see, see if that thing couldn't disappear. So, yeah, that was the first time that I ever held on to it myself. And uh, lo and behold, he never asked for it. So that was also the first time I ever smoked marijuana. So that's when weed was mostly about fun for Tim and his dad. Uh, eventually, they realized they have Crohn's disease, which is this kind of bad stomach ailment. We're not going to get into all of the details. Right. But from what I understand, it's a condition that involves a lot of pain. And I, this is not the first time I've heard people using marijuana to treat that pain. Marijuana helps, Tim says. He sees an opportunity here. Both him and his dad are using it. Maybe he can help other people. So this is the mid-2000s in Colorado. We've legalized medical cannabis a few years before. Uh, and the law allows homeowners to kind of 
grow plants for other people. And so Tim starts to put together these different patients and grow for them. And around this time, Tim's kind of unsatisfied with his job as a high school biology teacher. Wait, is there this show about a high school science teacher who makes drugs? It's really popular. Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. He's heard all the Breaking Bad jokes. But he starts experimenting with growing medical marijuana. He was already an avid gardener. His parents were both gardeners. Uh, and so he goes out, he gets some starter plants, he gets some grow lights, and he fills the basement with weed, something his wife isn't exactly thrilled with at first. But at the same time, too, I explained to her, you know, she, she knew I had, that I was dealing with the Crohn's thing. She knew my father was dealing with it also. So it just sort of was what it was. It was, it was, more, like, it was more like a craft your hobby that someone might have in their basement than like something that you're thinking about like it wasn't too breaking bad at that point it was it was just dabbling a little bit dabbling a little bit is an understatement tim becomes an expert in growing cannabis and over time he starts to think i can do more than just help people with this i might be able to make some money off of it and so tim's life really changed on this one kind of really busy fateful day that is a day i will never forget i woke up early in the morning with my letter of resignation. So Tim is all in now. It's 2009, the height of the recession. He cashes out his teacher retirement savings, about $80,000, and he plows it into this new business venture. He had been teaching for eight years in high school. He shows up one day, hands in his letter of resignation, and then he goes straight from there to leasing out this kind of moldy warehouse in Southwest Denver. You have to remember also that that was the the recession was going on at that point too, and this building had sat vacant for a while. So, landlords had some incentive to rent to some people maybe they otherwise wouldn't have. Not that I was shady, but at the time the business was was a little shady in in terms of not being heavily regulated. Then, once he signs the lease, it's official. Old career as high school biology teacher is over. New career as fledgling marijuana business owner had started. And then it was time to actually break the news to his parents over lunch. This is all happening in the same day. My mom just about fell off the high top bar stool that we were having lunch on. And they were really concerned about like the safety aspects of it. And what, what, what does this mean? What are you really doing with this? And um, I didn't have a lot of answers because we just hadn't done it yet. I didn't have the answers that a mom is going to want to hear the answers to when you tell her something like that. Despite the concerns from mom, Tim is on his way to becoming a marijuana business owner. He grows lots of plants. He opens his medical dispensary. He's one of the first to open in the city of Denver. And he sells lots of marijuana to medical patients. And when recreational sales started in 2014, that's when things really took off. Because the customer base in the medical system was 100,000 registered patients, more or less. They had to be state residents. Mm -hmm. They had to find a doctor to give them a recommendation. But with recreational marijuana, suddenly anyone in the world, 21 and over, are potential customers. So after rec becomes legal, Tim is one of the people that jumps on it. And this is what starts to cause this kind of shrinkage in the medical market, right? Fewer customers, fewer people, uh, to be blunt, not faking it anymore. <laughs> right. All those people who didn't really need it for medical reasons, they could just buy it on the recreational side. It's just a lot easier. And so lines for recreational weed just snake out the door for months after the first sales start. Tim becomes very successful. And within a few years, he was on the cover of 5280 magazine. 5280 is like a local magazine, glossy lifestyle kind of thing. 
Now he's the face of Colorado's cannabis industry, and his mom spots it in the checkout line at the grocery store. And that is what was legitimate cannabis to her. Like, that was, you've made it. Nothing, nothing left to worry about. You're on 5280 Magazine now. No, I like all the house plants. So the irony of this is that I don't grow cannabis. <laughs> Back to Michelle and Scott and Vincent. They have this nice house south of Denver. Vincent likes to hang out on the big couch in the living room. There's lots of nice sunlight there. Michelle keeps a lot of house plants in the windows nearby. I have 90 house plants, and not one of them is cannabis. But why not? Because I don't feel knowledgeable enough yet to do that. They're pretty technical, actually. They are. You know, there's mold and whatnot. And there's also legal issues, too. That is funny, because as a med card holder, Michelle could grow a certain number of plants at home if she wanted to. But she's right. It can get really complicated. Ideally, you would just go to the dispensary, right? And she does. Michelle and Scott say that Vincent's autism and epilepsy has improved dramatically while using cannabis. He speaks a little more. He has fewer seizures. He generally takes fewer medications, which means fewer side effects. Some of those side effects, like we said, could be really nasty. He was attacking me every day. He was pulling my hair. He was choking me. He was punching me. And it was beyond his control. He wanted to stop, but he couldn't. Here's Michelle recently at the state capitol in Denver testifying in support of this bill that would allow for medical marijuana as a treatment for autism. We moved here and our lives changed forever. My son doesn't attack me anymore. He's taught himself to read. We have two new puppies, which we never could have had. To be clear, Vincent was able to qualify for medical marijuana because he had epilepsy, not for his autism because it wasn't allowed yet. Michelle thinks that's not enough, though. She wants this to be available for kids who have just autism. And that's a big reason why she's thrown herself into activism since she moved to Colorado. We have the opportunity to change these families' lives. And I ask you, I ask you to please be a part of this and please help me change these children's lives. That bill eventually became law earlier this year. But despite that, it's actually getting harder for Vincent to find cannabis. When they arrived here two years ago, medical marijuana was everywhere. It was pretty easy. Head to a dispensary that sells medical products, find what you need, and go. But over time... When I would go into my, you know, kind of regular spots and they wouldn't have these typical products, you know, I would get a typical salt that I would like or um, an edible and... They wouldn't have them, and they had less and less and less, and the shelves were literally barren. And that's when I really started to realize, now that medical dispensaries are shutting down to become just recreational, it's more apparent than ever. You might be thinking, so what? Can't they get what Vincent needs on the recreational side? Right, so medical marijuana isn't exactly the same thing as recreational marijuana. First, Vincent is under 21, so he can't access the recreational market legally at all. So he loses access altogether if medical goes away. And medical products legally have a higher potency limit. So a gummy from the med side can be a lot more powerful than a gummy from the rec side. Michelle told us about this time when Scott accidentally took one of Vincent's edibles, knocked him out for an entire day. Oof. 
And then, of course, there's this money issue. Medical patients pay much lower taxes on medical marijuana products. It sort of makes up for the fact that your health insurance is not going to pay for this stuff. So the thing that's going on here is this economic death spiral in medical cannabis. Colorado regulations say you can only grow so many plants versus how many patients you have. So fewer patients means fewer plants, which means fewer products on the shelves. Which creates hassles for people like Vincent, who actually rely on marijuana as a medicine. Which is a little crazy when you think about it. Colorado voters approved medical marijuana as a constitutional amendment, which required it to be legal and available to those who need it. In theory, that should be ironclad. So this is a good time to get back to Tim Cullen. Earlier this year, he ran these ads for medical cannabis, basically half price. Like this is the cheapest you can buy cannabis on the medical side and crickets, nothing. Nobody came to take him up on it. And I said, I can't sell it for less than that. I have to change. Like we're either going to stop paying for the licenses and just not sell it, or we're going to find something else that we can do. That's when it felt to me like there was just no hope in trying to stay as a medical cannabis company. So earlier this year, Tim decided to get out of the medical business. A very difficult decision for him. When I visited, they were still switching things over. This is where medical has always traditionally been up here. The medical counter, what once was the medical counter, is now the connoisseur corner. This is for people who like handmade gourmet weed products. So medical marijuana is gone at Colorado Harvest Company, even though it helped build the business. And even though Tim used this as a medicine himself for his Crohn's disease, he kept his medical red card and still pays to renew it every year. It's bittersweet for him. I didn't think that we would lose it so quickly, but at the same time, it's evolved into something different that's given a lot more access to a lot more people. Now, to be clear, Michelle and Vincent were never customers at Tim's store. But here is where their stories intersect, at least philosophically. Tim actually thinks that this is the natural evolution of the weed business. Michelle looks at this, and her son Vincent, though, other families on the medical registry, and she sees what she thinks is a life-threatening trend. I'm afraid of cannabis becoming even more out of reach financially for those who need it most. These are the patients, these are the citizens of Colorado that are most vulnerable, and only having access to retail cannabis means that they may not be able to, to get it. Um, and that, that puts us behind. That takes us back to the dark ages and cannabis times. And people are going to go without their medicine. I mean, that, that is exactly the kind of story that tugs on my heartstrings. I mean, that, those are the legitimate concerns. Those are the people who will suffer by lack of availability. So I think those are real concerns. I would also venture to say that there is going to be some light at the end of the tunnel. Like this is a sticky area for her at this moment right now, but I think there will be enough changes that it will happen. So basically he's saying that med patients like Vincent can really only bank on the model eventually changing. Like, is he pinning everything on the slow pace of regulatory change? Kind of, but here's what he thinks. He thinks that Colorado, like a lot of states, has this 
weird system, right? Where the medical and the recreational side of the cannabis, they're both living in the same spot, sometimes on the same counter, just separated on opposite ends. He says it's like combining a pharmacy and a liquor store in the same spot. That does seem kind of weird when you put it that way. But it sounds like he's hoping for regulators to just sort all of that out at some point in the future. Right. To start to treat it a little bit more like an actual medicine. And so according to Tim, it's not letting medical marijuana die off. It's just divorcing it from the recreational side of the business. Just like other things you would you would pick up from your doctor prescribed to you at a pharmacy. Whereas I think recreational marijuana is going to continue to look a lot like it does right now and probably follows this like liquor store model. And that would mean that recreational stores can just focus on making money their way. And there'd be more tightly regulated medical industry that acts more like, you know, pharmacies. So it sounds like this maybe is a job for the regulators. That's the only way I can think of this happening. But right now, marijuana is still a Schedule One drug. So it doesn't seem like those changes can even happen until the federal government makes some changes, too. And most people in the industry are not banking on the federal government making any significant changes right. anytime soon. But Tim believes this would solve another problem that I actually hadn't even considered, and he didn't bring it up until we arrived at his dispensary. To come back to that, I'm still troubled that that, that woman is so concerned about, about running out of oil. It is also troubling for me, though, when I have, when I have to work with people like that who are asking me questions that they should be asking their doctor, like, how much of this should my kid take? How frequently should they take it? How, how many milligrams of THC should they be ingesting? How about CBD? Like, those are questions doctors should be answering, not dispensary owners. So I feel like that transition is ripe all the way around. Can you tell them about your medicine? Medicine. Does it help you feel better? Help feel better? Yes or no? Yes. Yes? We've spent a lot of time on this first season of On Something, exploring how legalization affects people's lives. And I think this is one of our clearest examples. 33 states have signed on to medical marijuana, a completely unprecedented experiment in public health. Think about it. 33 states have signed on to allow people access to a medicine that they can't get at a pharmacy, that their insurance won't pay for. And now the availability of that medicine depends on businesses, businesses who can't make money off of this thing anymore. This is a big, glaring, unintended consequence of the way that we legalized. And now, states that are considering jumping on the medical marijuana bandwagon, states like Wisconsin or Indiana or Kentucky, they are all going to have to reckon with this as well. And as Michelle would tell you, that's why a growing number of people in this country will determine where they live based on whether or not they can access medical marijuana. Do you want to go back to Texas? Mm-hmm. Can you say it? Do you want to go back to Texas? No, Texas. No. No Texas. No. We won't talk about Texas anymore. Anne-Maria Wad hosted the podcast On Something and CPR business reporter Ben Marcus on the uncertain future of medical marijuana. You can hear this and other episodes of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. 
Thanks for spending time with us today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.